and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas, and this is our Wednesday show where we niche down to a single topic, think about a question, and unpack the rest. As always, I am joined by Alex, who now we're apart and it's not as fun to record without you in person. Yes, but there are so many advantages. We're not holding our microphones in our hands. We're not camped out in a green room and using my spouse as a bouncer. You know, there are... There are nice things. That's the so internet's true. better, you know? Yeah, actually, I forget that most podcasts in the before times were recorded in person. And I guess now I'm like, I appreciate this as a novelty for like a little boost of energy. But you're right. I love being in my PJs and having everything accessible to me. Yeah. Also, we should do more live shows. Like, I think it's good to be in person. It's good to do it with an audience when we can. It's good to do it on Hopin and Twitter spaces. More live is good, but... Next time, we're going to up our production bar because, you know, we haven't been together for years. We don't have those muscles anymore. So, you know, we'll get there. Totally. I mean, one benefit of being remote is that we can experiment a little more without an audience all around us. And that's exactly what we're going to do in this episode. Our producer, Maggie, talked to us before the show and she was like, I feel like this is the Mythbusters episode. And it made me much more excited because we're framing it around that. But a lot of this episode is really going to be about an idea I was thinking of over the weekend, which is my first few years when I was reporting on startups, I was taught a lot of assumptions or truths about startups. And now a few years in, I'm like, things aren't as separate and unimpacted by each other as we think. Kirsten Green was also saying this when I was asking her about how the market is impacting seed stage companies that she was like, listen, there are no silos, even though you say that they are. And that's kind of where we're going to go today. So we're going to talk about what are some startup assumptions that get it wrong. We're going to take this kind of over a range of topics, Natasha. We have a number of these to pick through. I think we have five. Five. And they're going to be everything from how a vertical can impact more than its own vertical to startup theory. I think of this really as us trying to clear the air on things that we feel passionate about. And we're happy that equity is nerdy enough as a listenership to care. Yes. Welcome to the soft kids and their big feelings equity, which is kind of all (laughs) the same thing. Shall we start? Let's start. I mean, the first one is definitely a continuation of our past few months, which is getting into the market. The assumption that we often are taught is that only late stage investors are going to be hit by changing market conditions because one, the IPO market has slowed. And so, of course, the companies and unicorns that are preparing to leave and debut on the public market are no longer able to do so. So that's the assumption, right? Only unicorns are impacted. Alex, how true is this? It's false. It's very, very false. (laughs) It's funny how long this has been a topic of discussion because back in the day, I would talk to VCs about what they're working on, what they're investing in, and also where the markets are. And VCs love to poo-poo me. They'd be like, ah, Alex, listen, we are not public market investors. The the markets, they go up and down. You know, we only back hardcore value. And I would always be like, yeah, I don't believe you. And it turns out that I was kind of on the right side of that one because the markets do matter. They matter first to the late stage, then they matter to the mid stage, and then they matter to the early stage. And we are seeing this progression throughout the global startup economy today. But the idea that you have to be like doing material revenues you can comp against a public company to be hit by a change in value is wrong. Because, Natasha, if you're going to go ahead and raise a Series B, investors are going to know where Series Cs are pricing. And that's going to show up in your valuation number. It takes time, but it does matter. Also, I'm sorry, but we're all human. And if an investor can somehow prove that they can pay less for a startup investment because they're looking at the markets, I doubt that they're going to spend more if they don't have to. And I mean, yeah, I think the new pet peeve is definitely early stage investors saying that venture capital is stopping these startups and kind of giving them a bubble around them from having to immediately answer to the slashes and valuations we're seeing from public tech companies. The more subtle signals I'm noticing that made me realize that early stage companies are being impacted 
is definitely pivots. We're seeing a lot more focus on profitability. I just was pitched an accelerator that's only accepting companies that have ARR. Ah. And it's stuff like that that I'm like, okay, maybe you're not having layoffs or your valuations aren't publicly being cut. But I think you're probably not going to raise if you don't need to, if because the terms aren't as founder friendly as they used to be. You're pivoting to be more sustainable in your revenue. And at most, you're starting to be a little bit more disciplined with that spending. Absolutely. And just to put one more color on this one before we move on, but like if you think about where we are involving the late stage, obviously valuations have compressed. We've seen this across a number of rounds. Tiger has moved away from this area, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then it used to be series B and below was kind of unimpacted. But lately people are talking about how extreme the seed market is and how a lot of these companies are going to struggle to raise an A. That is the progression of the conversation that shows how far backwards into the earlier stages the public market changes have gone and just shows how much time it takes. But pretty soon it'll be only the pre-seed startups that are not being impacted. And after that, it'll only be the ideas. And before that, just brain cells. (laughs) Anyways. So true. I want to make a little bit of a leap and I want you to tell me if I'm fair. I noticed that Andreessen, so they announced an accelerator last, or they they announced an accelerator yesterday. I was going to say last month, but it's just been less than 24 hours. 12 hours, give or take. So Andreessen announced an accelerator. Sequoia announced an accelerator. These firms have dedicated seed funds. And I might be splitting hairs here, but I noticed that both firms didn't announce an ownership target for the companies that they plan to bring into their accelerators. And my cynical side thinks that part of that is they don't really need to because the market's changing and they are allowed to kind of be vague about how much ownership and how much money they give because startups just want an Andreessen or Sequoia stamp of approval. Yeah. Do you think that's a leap? No, I don't think it's a leap at all. I also think that one of the best things that Y Combinator did, and I don't know if they really were the first to ever do this, but they did make it popular, was to have a standard deal. You come to YC, you get X dollars for Y percent. It used to be like 35K for like 7%. Times have changed. But at least they have a public deal that you can look at, consider, know you're going to get the same shake as anyone else, and take it or not. These new things feel like a weird blend between accelerator and venture fund in which the VC kind of wants to have it both ways. They want to have the early stage access, but they want to have the standard terms. And to me, it's a little little meandering. And I think YC is going to maintain a pretty serious advantage or retain one because their deal terms are public and they just improve them. So from my perspective, I don't think it's a leap. I do think it just shows how things are changing and how yeah. even late stage investors are feeling the same pressure and they're trying to go earlier and earlier and earlier. And pretty soon they're going to back babies. <laughs> no, I mean, it's so true. I, and I think on the founder side, as we talked about at early stage too, the fact that equity and founder ownership of their companies is starting to rebubble up as a priority and maybe not accepting capital makes me just think more about how founders are coming out of a very them-friendly market. So it'll be fun to see how everything clashes. Yeah. But let's do one more late stage focused assumption. This is such an Alex assumption and I'm so excited to talk about it. The next one is, quote, only IPOs misprice startups. Yes. Take us back to 2021 when this became our conversation every single damn day. Well, not to be particular, but I would actually go back a year earlier. I would say 2020 as well, because if you think about when C3.ai went public, the company priced its IPO at $42 per share. It shot up to over 160 and people were flat out losing their minds because everyone's like, oh my gosh, this IPO is so mispriced. They left so much money on the table. These bankers are just ripping off startups. And today, Natasha, it's currently trading for, well, it's trading up a little bit, but it's 52 week low was $16 and 58 cents. Wow. So which price was more correct? The $42 IPO price, the $160 all time high, give or take, or the now roughly 17, 18 bucks that it were trades. Well, I don't entirely know which is the fair price, but I do know the people that were complaining that 42 was too low were wrong. So yes, 
IPOs occasionally do get the price of a company wrong, but not in the direction that people tend to complain. And I would say that one thing we have seen inside the IPO market is that late stage rounds are often mispriced compared to a later IPO valuation, which means that investors on the private side are underpaying for startups, which we don't hear about as much because no one likes to shellac on their backers. But I think a lot of companies that went public in the last two years were underpriced in their final private rounds and VCs made off like bandits for not doing a lot of work. Amen. And co-sign all of that. When you were kind of explaining this dynamic, I started thinking maybe a little bit peripherally about Visa and Plaid and how they're about to merge. And mm. Plaid was valued at like $5 billion. Mm, 5. Three, 3. four, five, somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah. And now they are valued so much <laughs> higher um, with raising more money. And can you kind of the dots between this dynamic and that dynamic? Because I can tell that they're related, but I don't exactly know why. Yeah. So Visa looks at Plaid and says, all right, cool. Currently, we're one of the biggest companies in the traditional financial world, the old school world of cards and terminals and so forth. What Plaid is doing is taking bank accounts, abstracting money away from the physical world entirely and connecting it digitally to a location. Your bank account and Natasha's excellent, I don't know, banking app or whatever. And so you can move my money around. It's very nice. Visa obviously wanted to own this because it mattered very much. And so they offered a price, Plaid agreed to sell. And everyone on the VC side at the time was telling me things like Plaid is such a great business. If they yeah. hadn't sold, they would be going public. And I was like, all right. Then the deal falls apart and they raise more money at like a $12, 14000000000 billion valuation. What's going more on than double. It's because it was, in fact, mispriced. Visa was going to get with the deal of the century. Yeah. Which is to say that growth can make prior valuations appear rather minimal, which is why I didn't say Series A investors are getting away with murder when they invest in a company that later was public for a much higher price. But really, it's the latest stages of the private markets is where we see companies often raise their last round and then go out and then shoot much higher and people blend to bankers and don't look back six months before when private investors were putting money in at a far lower price than even the IPO valuation. So the plot example is almost a boost to my point. And I'll just say that, Zach, do you have two boats now instead of one boat? <laughs> poor you. Yeah, poor, poor Zach. you. It's so real that valuations become something that people are splitting hairs over and arguing about these mispricings and who's making what. I mean, obviously the upside does change depending on the valuation, but people as an I forget often that valuations are literally just projections. There is such a baked in assumption that they are mispriced or they are subjective. No one's saying that valuations are true. You only, how long after going public do they become more realistic? I, I, okay. So I feel like in the old times, I would tell you, you know, give it a couple of quarters. Yeah, we'll see. But I feel like things have been changing so much in the economy and the yeah. technology landscape and so forth that I don't know when the price is reasonable. Like, for example, you know, C3.ai at 42 may have been a little bit expensive, but it, and this is not investment advice, it feels a little cheap where it is right now. Where will that net out? I don't know because sentiment plays into projections and how people feel about a company or a sector or a space, for example, will impact how they value the stock based on their own view of its long term or the present value of its future cash flows. If you want to get spicy. But anyways, the point is many things can misprice a company, often private investors. And I'm sick of the old saw that it's only IPOs that are out there to take startup money. When in reality, most of the value is taken by others and they are the ones complaining, which makes it very funny. But let's move on. <laughs> Natasha, we are going to now talk about smaller companies to a small degree. And we're going to riff on the idea that you need to be a Web3 company in order to embrace or take advantage of really crypto culture. Yeah. So for so long, I was thinking that Web3 companies and Web2 companies kind of had this iron shield between them. But yesterday, my friend who's a founder basically introduced me to the idea of Web2.5, which I kind of love. It's the Web2 companies that are maybe adopting bits and pieces and maybe features that are 
are popular within crypto companies, but not necessarily putting all their eggs in that basket and more so making sure that they're serving the mainstream consumer. It's just like, it's the more realistic way that we're going to see companies adopt crypto. It's not going to be an overnight 110% DAO pivot. So you're telling me that what we may see as an impact of a lot of Web3 slash crypto slash whatever you want to call it isn't just the tokenization or the financialization of everything, but a lot of companies taking on some kind of crypto forward things like a focus on community and maybe interoperability, for example, as key planks of their, is it business ethos, business plan? How would you say that? Yeah, I think it'll impact everything from how they hire and what titles they will give people to what their product strategy becomes down the road. There's two companies that I think have really underscored this for me. One we talked about last week, it was Braid. They are trying to make shared wallets among friends a more mainstream and easy to spin up concept. And Amanda Payton talked about how the growing mindshare of decentralization and making sure that people have more visualization into how money looks and flows has helped this definitely fintech web 2.0 company build trust among consumers and maybe have a stronger ethos and resonance with them. Can I quibble for a second? Yes, please do. How are you defining web 2? Ooh, I guess I'm defining it as companies that aren't interested in taking a big stance on building on the blockchain of promising that power of their company will be decentralized or necessarily viewing like a pivot to organizing via DAO. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I just pulled up, what is the dictionary Google uses? I don't even know. But anyways, that one, <laughs> Web 2.0, as I learned how to say it, apparently it's Web 2. Anyways, it was the idea that the web evolved to a second generation from static to more dynamic content and more user-generated content. And what's really fascinating about that definition of Web 2 is that it does kind of fit into Web 3 in that it's designed to be more about community and kind of user-led stuff. So I wonder if Web 3 isn't and Web 2.5 also isn't. And Web 3 is actually Web 2.5. Web 2.5 is just Web 2. It's like Web 2 with like a bold and asterisk. <laughs> I completely agree. It's, it's very much like an enhanced Web 2, right? Web 2 in italics. There you go. Oh my God. No, I mean, it's so true. And I think the less professional way I'm dividing Web 2 and Web 3 is Web 2 are companies that are not focusing on niche, confusing crypto concepts. <laughs> And Web3 companies are selling NFTs and are trying to very much serve that niche user. Oh, I'm definitely going to get in trouble for calling NFT lovers niche, but so be they it. They are niche. You can just look up the daily active <laughs> transaction volumes for NFTs and their niche. So, there mean, we go. Fact. There we go. If you don't I mean, like that... <laughs> Maggie.stamets at TechCrunch.com. <laughs> Perfect. The other example that underscores that Web 2 and Web 3 are not as separate as we think is this rise of alternative investing. Everything from Robinhood and the rise of social fintech to Aqua, which is trying to make private equity investing more accessible to a retail investor, can show that we're seeing this idea that you can make money and spread your ads across multiple baskets is becoming more mainstream. To me, it's not that relevant on who started that conversation, but more like crypto is impacting companies beyond just crypto companies. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to point out that we do occasionally joke about bits of Web3, but that doesn't mean that we're opposed to quite a lot of it. Like a focus on community to me is an inherent good and something that should be encouraged at all possible times. My beef is that people conflate having a Discord with having a community, which does kind of lead us into the question about customers and community. So the myth that we want to bust next is your customers are a community. Oh, oh my God. This is the question that (laughs) we've seen community have to answer itself as it turned into like a new 
new concept to a buzzword to now something that I almost always will X out the email if it leads with community. The idea that your customers are a community naturally used to be where the community conversation went. You can join a Discord. TC had a Discord. I don't know if we still use it, but (laughs) there's like a lot of attempts and really smart ways that people try and engage people. But I think we're getting to a point where this buzzword is getting checked so many times that we're realizing that not every customer needs to be a community and not every community can be turned into customers. It was really underscored with my recent conversation with Mac Redden. He's building a company, Comsor, that helps companies better manage their communities. And he basically, paraphrasing a little bit, was talking about how just because you can get people to come together and talk about your product doesn't mean that your company has a community strategy. It may just be a niche of power users. Let's say with Notion, you can maybe get people to share hacks, but can you help those users trade notes? Can you help newcomers get basic advice? It just is a lot more complicated than just bringing people into a room and locking the door. Yeah. I'm going to take a stab at this, at defining this. (laughs) Love to make stuff up on the show. (laughs) But essentially, I think a community becomes that as opposed to a collection of customers when the community can derive more or more frequent value from one another than from the company itself. And an example of this is Paradox Games, a European game shop. They're public and like, I don't know, freaking Sweden or something. And I'm a huge fan of their games and I'm very active in their community because I read the forums, I read the Reddits and the community only talks, the company only talks so much. The community talks all the time about what they're doing with the games, modding, what's coming up, tournaments, et cetera. And so I derive a simply enormous value from the community apart from what the company brings to it. So at that point, it is in fact its own thing that is next to, but separate and distinct from the company itself. I am a customer of Paradox. I am also a member of the larger Paradox Games community, if that makes sense. And I think that it's nuanced. I'm sorry to bring in my hobbies to the show, but like... No, it's perfect example. It's kind of making me want to twist, obviously, this assumption that your customers are a community naturally into you can be a customer and you can be a community member, but oftentimes they are two different roles that you will encompass within a company or a idea or club. Yes. And to assume that they happen naturally or without intention makes it a lot more complicated because there's a lot of, I don't want to say bad, but not useful communities out there. I've entered many group chat where it's not really that it's not it's not it's not changing my life and it's magic when it happens it's a lot more complicated and i think we've seen companies start to realize that after evolving past discord and maybe doing more in-person stuff tying this back to the web3 thing the reason why i think community is often misused in the web3 world is because what people like to do is get together and talk about their betting and a lot of people bet on an NFT project or a new token or whatever. And so it's fun to get together and talk to other people about investing. I mean, investing groups were one of the earlier use cases of the internet, right? So yeah. this is an old school thing. But getting together a bunch of traders, essentially, to talk about trading is not quite the same thing as the community thing we're trying to highlight here. And I think that Web3 is great at bringing people together around projects and around hype, for lack of a better phrase. But that doesn't mean that you've built a long-term community. Just like a piece of art is technically IP, but it's not IP in the same way that we discuss like the Star Wars franchise. Definitely. As you said, yes, we roast crypto from time to time as we naturally and it's healthy to do so. But as you can tell from listening to our show, we care so much about community. We care so much about transparency. And so a lot of these things, when they're done well, are really interesting. But the fun part as a journalist is that they really speak for themselves. Like you will only have a successful community if you put the work in. It's not going to happen regardless or hands off. And so I like that we're getting to a point where a lot of these so-called hype terms and strategies are being put to the test. I'm now looking forward to Jacqueline coming back on the show and telling us why we're wrong. Yes, totally. 
Totally. She was great. It was fun to have her on. It really was. I want to turn to our last assumption. This is my favorite one because this is like a lifelong crusade that I will probably be on. The assumption is having more money means that you win. Oh my God. This is so hard because when I first started reporting, I thought that every time you raise money, it should be a celebratory event. It doesn't come with any other sorts of objectives, stresses, board members, outcomes that you need to deliver on. In fact, you just have more money to hire people. Yeah. <laughs> it's that easy. That's right? only true in Tiger investing you, by the way. <laughs> Yeah. It's so crazy. I mean, I feel like so many founders also are realizing now, as we saw with Fast even recently, that having more money does not mean that you win. In fact, often having too much money can lead to a lack of focus, over-investing in early experiments, over-hiring, and a lot of other issues. I mean, I've told this story on equity before, so I'll keep it like micro-brief. Actually, we've done enough episodes now. People don't remember what I said two years Talk. ago. Yeah. yeah. Tell right. me the thing. <laughs> so my dad told me a story about a small poetry magazine. Small poetry magazine, as you can tell, not going to be the thing that gets you a yacht. In fact, keeping the doors open is the real goal of a small poetry magazine. Shout out everyone who reads poetry. Good on you. I don't read enough of it. Trying to do more. But the point is, this poetry magazine never really did very well. Shoestring budget, but survived. And then someone died and left the poetry magazine Ooh. a ton of money. And within like a year, it was dead because all of a sudden all this money came in, brought in you know different sets of people, different sets of priorities. And suddenly the thing that worked was essentially overwhelmed by cash. And this can also happen to startups. And in fact, this is why YC used to give you enough money to essentially buy ramen and park your car while you were working on your yeah. company. No distractions, no fancy vacations. You're not getting on planes. You're just working. And that has gone away some. And I think we've learned the power of capital to a certain degree. But Natasha, do you recall the first vision fund? Oh my God. How could I not recall it? And do you recall how every single company, they dropped several hundred million dollars into did super well and IPO'd immediately. <laughs> It was kind of like the easiest time to be a reporter digging into how companies are struggling right now because you could kind of go through the list and start pinging former or current employees. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But honestly, no, you're so right. I think that that much capital that SoftBank put in that we've seen a lot of companies raise during the pandemic, which was a separate moment of hype, is starting to play itself out as this was a huge distraction. I mean, my Roe story, the biggest tipping point for a lot of employees was when Roe started buying a ton of companies. They were like, no, 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 we used to be more moderate in our growth. And now we want to be the Amazon of healthcare. And I didn't sign up for that. And so it's such like a clear departure that more money may mean that you have more money, but that might be all that it means well, <laughs> at the same time. It means that you have more money temporarily, Yeah, but startups tend to use money. And so if you give people resources, they'll use them. And this is why it's also part of the job of investors to not give companies that are too young too much because you'll end up with inefficiencies and a lack of focus and all the stuff that we've been talking about almost ad nauseum. A point that an investor made a while ago was interesting to me. He basically said that not casting a stereotype on all historically overlooked founders, but because so many of them have had to either bootstrap or have historically not had access to unlimited funds, when he does invest in them, he's like, they are so stingy, for lack of better phrasing, with their dollars that he basically has to tell them, put the gas on. You can spend. You can hire an executive assistant. You can pay for a subscription to the news outlets that you need to read. And plus. Give us, exactly we'll take that. your money, please. <laughs> all of it. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. I feel obliged to say that now. As you should. But I mean, yeah, as a producer just said, like scarcity is a hard mindset to shake. Yes. And the opposite is also interesting. Thinking about people who haven't had money getting money, that's a separate conversation. One that I love thinking about. There was one last point I wanted to try to make. We can totally edit this out if it doesn't work well. But well, I was now talking it has to stay to in. You just jinx <laughs> That's the one thing you can say is you can cut this out because by rule, we don't. I know. Drum roll, please. <laughs> uh, if we can get a sound effect. 
and go. Bear with me. I was talking to students yesterday and I was trying to explain to them how it's hard to raise the next round of capital. So a lot of people view joining a series C startup as more stable than joining a seed startup. And while that may be true, that your risk potentially as an employee goes down the later and more solidified and legitimate this business is, because technically it can only raise a series C if it's legitimate, the company at the same time has harder and harder questions to answer. So basically the company may be getting de-risked, but its standards are getting higher as you go. So like both dynamics are clashing with each other as a startup gets older. It's both easier to know that this company will stay around, but it's also harder for that company to really disrupt. Yeah. If you're a startup employee, the earlier you go you collect upside and risk at the same time. And as you go later in stages, if you join only series D startups that are doing pre-IPO rounds, then you have lower upside and lower risk. And you can kind of just slot yourself in where you want. I mean, there are operators out there in the market who love to work with pre-seed to series A startups. And then after that, they kind of leave because they don't want to be around for when the company builds out tiers of management and yeah. not in a bad way, like a formal HR department, you know, like suddenly you have to not be drunk at the office or whatever. Yeah, like, get yeah, yourself together. Yeah. And so like- a real company. Yeah. Well said. When it goes from a startup to a real company, I just think we've stretched the word startup so long now that people are like, Stripe, a $95 billion startup. But I'm like, (laughs) no, that's an international conglomerate is what that is. A hundred percent. And it's so weird for people who are thinking about joining companies, specifically looking at like funding stages as the reason on whether they should or shouldn't join. Because your company may hit a $1 billion valuation two weeks after you started, but then it might get slashed. And I know there's examples out there, but like it's something that I wish we talked about a little bit more. Yeah, well, let's add that to the show notes, but we should stop. We have gone through our five myths that we hopefully have, if not busted, at least given a good whack. It feels so good to just clarify some things. I feel like it's a correction that we're just giving to the industry right now. It feels good. Or alternatively, it's two friends shouting into the void. One of the two, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yes, listeners, tell us which one it is. Hopefully, And as before, (laughs) maggie.stamets at techcrunch.com. Alex, you're a pleasure. Everyone, please use code equity when subscribing to TC+. I had a column that this show was somewhat based off of. Alex is running the show now, so shout out to him endlessly for killing it and doing 17 jobs. Well, No one could tell. We should clarify it. Running the show, equity, no, teamwork. Editor of TechCrunch Plus, yes, that is my job. (laughs) I am not in charge of equity. It is a group effort as always. Natasha, a real pleasure. And we are not live this week. Found is live on Thursday. We will be at a regular time on Friday, but next week, I believe we are live again. So we'll see you then. Time to find an outfit. Bye, guys.